and welcome to Parallel, a tech podcast with accessibility sprinkles. I'm Shelley Brisbane, your host. This is episode 69 for March 2022. This episode of Parallel is brought to you by Microsoft Lists, your smart information tracking app in Microsoft 365. Today we're talking about a topic that is very close to my heart, employment, specifically for folks with disabilities, finding it, keeping it, managing it, and understanding why it can be especially challenging when you have a disability. My guest today is Jonathan Mosen. He is the CEO of WorkBridge in New Zealand, and he knows a lot about the topic of employment for people with disabilities, specifically folks with blindness. And I really want to pick his brain and get his perspective about how people with disabilities can not only get, but keep jobs and thrive once in them. Jonathan, welcome back to Parallel. Thanks, Shelley. Nice to be with you. It's great to have you. So tell me about WorkBridge. What, what does your organization do? WorkBridge is an organization that has been around for 90 years now, and it is an employment agency for disabled people in New Zealand. We do two things, really. We prepare disabled people for job readiness. So the government funds that program, and we enroll disabled people of all kinds. So it's a pan-disability organization. And we go through things like CV preparedness, disclosure, positive disclosure. How do you confront the issues about your disability and the questions that people might have? And we also provide support in finding jobs. That support will vary a great deal from person to person. Some people perhaps just need to be introduced to a disability confident employer. Others would like to have assistance at the interview. And that will vary based on personality and indeed impairment type. And then on the flip side, we do a lot of disability confidence work. We try to create an environment that has more disability confident employers in it. And that's essentially going to employers, answering their questions honestly, on a no fear basis, just ask us anything. And we talk about what's involved in hiring, accommodating disabled people successfully and working with them in the workplace. So that's a snapshot of what we do. A lot of us focus on getting people with disabilities jobs. There are statistics. I know in the United States, it's often quoted that 60 or 70 percent of people with disabilities are unemployed or underemployed. And everybody agrees that's a bad thing. And there's a lot of conversation when we talk about diversity, whether that should include people with disabilities and, and in fact, whether it does, because a lot of time that that sort of information isn't gathered. But I sometimes feel like those conversations leave us at the employer's doorstep. We we don't necessarily, uh, as you were describing the way you work with both employers and people with disabilities in terms of how to make ready for, for interviews and for actual, you know, taking taking a job, I, I sometimes feel like those conversations get left at, at the employer's door and we don't we don't dig in. And so that's what I'd love to do. And I guess my, my first question would be on the, the side of the the employers, what are are you are you working with employers typically in terms of getting them to accept the idea of employing people with disabilities generally, or are you working with them in terms of employing specific folks, or is it both? A little bit of both. We run a separate subsidiary called Just Say Yes, and that is a subscription program because a lot of larger business in particular, certainly here in New Zealand, are now being 
really pressured to make sure that their diversity programs include disability, but they really don't have any idea where to start. And so with our Just Say Yes program, you can pay an annual subscription. Uh, We provide workshops for your workplace. We have a hotline you can call if you have any questions. And that helps with sort of general readiness, preparedness to be a disability confident workplace. But then also we're always on the lookout as well. So if we find that we have a disabled person with us who is seeking to be in a particular industry, then we might make the approach and we might say, we've got your next rock star employee here. They happen to be a disabled person. They are really good and they will add value. And what businesses like to hear is that they might be able to get a competitive edge, something that they know that their competitors don't. So we often try and frame the message positively and we say, listen, you know, traditionally your competitors are overlooking a gold mine of talent, particularly now in New Zealand at the moment with the COVID pandemic, our borders are virtually locked up tight. We're not letting people in to try and keep the virus out. And that means that there is a labour shortage, a skills shortage in many areas. And there are disabled people who can do that work. So we see a window of opportunity there. So, you know, I think one of the troubles that we have is that, like as as is the case in many uh, discussions these days, people are talking past each other. So disabled people get frustrated. They feel like employers don't understand them. We try to see it from both sides. We understand that for employers, they are fundamentally risk averse. And unfortunately, they perceive disabled people as a risk sometimes, whether that be for health and safety or accommodations. Sometimes it's just experiential deficits. They just can't imagine, for example, in my case as a blind person, they can't imagine how I as a blind person could do the job that they have. They close their eyes and they think, wow, if I were blind, I couldn't do this job, therefore, nor can he. So we've got a lot of education to do and there's no point hitting people over the head over their ignorance. We need to inform people patiently and gently and get them to yes. But then once you get to that point, let's say you've made a match, and I'm sure that it varies quite a bit with the employer and also the, the, the person involved, the employee involved in the kind of disability they have. But once you get to the point where they've said either we'll interview them or hopefully they've hired them. Is there work to do after that on on both sides in terms of making sure that match actually works? Sometimes there is. And the thing is that our work is so broad because we're a pan-disability organisation. As you say, that work varies a lot. So it may be on the side of the employee, the new employee, that they haven't held down a job before. And there's simply the routine of doing the job. There could be issues relating to getting to the job. And then there could be issues with how do your colleagues accept you? Are they holding you back because they're trying to be nice, but they're being a bit overprotective? And that puts the employee in a vulnerable position because they don't want to rock the boat. They may have wanted this job for a very long time, So they could be a bit reluctant to speak up for themselves. So that is an important part of a successful placement that once we've got there, we are there to provide that kind of support for both parties. So what kinds of advice would you give to somebody with a disability who's 
maybe moving into a job for the first time or moving into a job that's particularly challenging. Maybe it's their dream job and they've finally gotten it. They've gotten over the hurdles. They've got hired. They're sitting down on the first day or, or, or thereafter. And they want to make a success of it. And they want to do all the things we need to do in our jobs, which is not only do our work, but make progress in our in our in our career and, and you know, be, be impressive and deliver a presentation, all the things that one might do. So, so how do you how do you support or what, what would be your advice to people who find themselves in that position but want to make sure they continue moving forward? I think the advice would vary a lot depending on impairment. One of the things that this job has taught me in the nearly three years that I've been doing it is that, you know, I no longer look through a blindness lens at everything and I've very much got a a more pan-disability lens now. So if your impairment involves a mental disability or you deal with anxiety, that kind of thing, actually dealing with all of these doubts and trying to put people at their ease and things can be extremely stressful. But if we take that out of the equation, if you're blind or deaf or hearing impaired or you have a physical impairment, I think the best way to cope with it is to, if you feel comfortable doing so, just trying to put people at their ease. If people have concerns, if they have questions, if you feel like you are not being given your full workload that you're capable of doing because of other people's perceptions and not your limitations, then perhaps seek advice if needed on how do you deal with those issues in a constructive way. I actually had this a long time ago in my own career where I worked for an organization that had two buildings that were across the street from one another. And when I first got to this workplace, a lot of uh, the staff were very worried about me crossing the street. It wasn't even a very busy street either, but they were worried about it. And uh, I, in the end, asked the... uh, head of that company, if I could just have 10 to 15 minutes at the next company meeting to talk about myself and uh, the, the techniques that I use, that sort of thing. And the problem went away. And I understand that for many people, you just think, oh my goodness, not again, do I really have to do this? But I look at it as an investment that will hopefully pay dividends in a long and fruitful relationship with your colleagues. And I'm sure that for some people, and and probably you among them, that was a task that you felt comfortable with because you're well-spoken and you you, you talk for a living or have in, in past iterations of your life. And I, I'm sure that for some people, though, that's really difficult because they have to conceptualize what the employer and what their colleagues need and want to hear. And then they have to deal with whatever anxieties or stresses they may feel about whether it's literally disclosure or whether it's just basically, you know, coming out and saying, this is me. These are the uh, these are the things that I do to uh, provide accommodations for myself. These may be the limitations or their perceived limitations. And basically, I'm opening myself up. I'm being I'm being being vulnerable to you in this moment. And that's going to be hard for a lot of people, I would imagine. Yes, it is. It's going to require a lot of honesty. It can make people feel very nervous. And that's why WorkBridge in the model that we use are still there at a time like this. So once you've got the placement, we can be there to intervene in any way that the disabled person feels comfortable with. So if an employment consultant from WorkBridge can come along and perhaps do a bit of education, then we would happily do that with the consent of the person that we're working with. And then I would imagine that there are some situations, too, where 
a, a person who is blind or has a physical disability might benefit from understanding having a good understanding of the accommodations they need. And I don't even just mean like literally a computer with a screen reader or, or a ramp, but being able to fit themselves into the workplace and be able to assure their employers and their colleagues, yes, I can do this, but I might need some accommodation or assistance. And that requires both that you understand that for yourself and also that you're able to communicate that in a way the employer can, can understand. Yeah, and sometimes this is a barrier to actually getting the hire in the first place. I don't know whether this is as much of an issue in the United States as it is here, but one of the biggest problems we have is the driver's license problem, where you see job ads that say a driver's license is required. And sometimes one of our consultants will look at that job and they will say, wow, other than that requirement, we've got someone who's perfect for this job. And so we go to the employer and we say, why are you insisting on a driver's license for this role? And they say, well, obviously there's a bit of travel involved and the person's got to get from A to B. So we have to work with the employer to get them to focus on the end and not the means. I mean, if the means is an Uber or some other way, then what difference does it make? And they often, the employer does a double take and says, I've never thought of it like that. And there are many examples of this. And you're right, sometimes they're not the really big high tech things. One of the things that comes up a little bit as well is when you get the job, sometimes people have these little boards in the office that uh, depict whether you are present in the office or not. And often people have their own little coloured markers and that sort of thing. That's easy enough to adapt if you're a blind person and you just want to signify your own presence. But if you're in a position where you need to tell who's present in the office and who is not, then a little bit more lateral thinking and an alternative system might be required. The driver's license thing I have seen, and in fact, uh, my, my current employer for a long time before I was there had job descriptions that routinely said a driver's license is required. And I actually did a lot of advocacy on that and asked them to think about specifically. There are there are jobs in that organization that do require driving a an organization vehicle and doing specific things that would require you to drive. And they, what those questions are often getting at is they want to be able to access your driving record so that if you're driving a company vehicle, they can make sure that you have a safe driving record. But then the, the vestige of that is we put driver's license requirements in a lot of job categories that where they don't necessarily need to be. And where in this specific case that I'm talking about, there weren't even travel components to the job. It was just everybody in the newsroom. This is a, a radio station. Everybody in the newsroom, well, clearly you have to drive. Well, not if you're running the website. I mean, <laughs> so, so it just yeah. took a little creative. But that's, I mean, it, it seems like, I feel like there's some people who, based on their own experience and just their own personalities, are probably in a better position to negotiate those sorts of things than others. And I always think about the person who, who comes in and maybe they're an engineer, maybe they're a dishwasher, whatever position they're in, but they may not necessarily have, have had the experience of sort of negotiating or explaining themselves in that way. And, and I guess I wonder what, 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 the, what kind of confidence building you've, you've applied to, to those kind of situations. Yes, we focus a lot on things like positive disclosure, on positive and constructive self-advocacy, because what can sometimes happen is that if somebody feels a little uh, overwhelmed by a situation, they may respond 
by becoming quite aggressive and confrontational. And I understand why, you know, if you know full well that you're a great candidate for this role and there are barriers that are being put up for you that don't need to be there, you're going to be frustrated, particularly if this is your 20th job interview or whatever. And so I get that. But we work through those positive disclosure issues. It's it's a, it's a really important thing that we're doing because we're trying to tackle it from both sides. So while we're doing that, we're also saying to employers, look, just have a think about your hiring practices because you may consider hiring disabled people potentially as a risk and a cost, but actually it's an untapped opportunity. And if you put these unnecessary barriers up, then you may be missing out on an employee who can really help your bottom line significantly. Keeping track of information is something that's part of everyone's job description today. Quite simply, writing things down is what works for simple lists. But it can get overwhelming when you need to stay on top of hundreds of items and get others to pay attention and act. Microsoft Lists is a Microsoft 365 app that helps you easily track information and organize your work. Lists are simple, smart, and flexible, so you can stay on top of what matters most to your team. Track issues, assets, routines, contacts, inventory, and more using customization views and smart rules and alerts to keep everyone in sync. With ready-made templates, you can quickly start lists online on the new mobile app for iOS and directly within Microsoft Teams. And because it's part of Microsoft 365, you can rely on enterprise-ready security and compliance. I use a lot of lists in both my day job and my other projects, podcasting and writing and all that sort of thing. So I not only need the ability to create multiple lists and have access to them wherever I am, whether it's on the go or inside meetings or on my computer, but I need a variety of lists. I I love to-do lists and I I keep those. I also have lists as simple as grocery lists and inventory lists uh, for tax purposes and just in any number of kinds of lists. And it's great to be able to create a list that is customized for the task and I don't have to sit and figure out what kind of fields I need to create because it's an inventory list. It has certain needs and requirements that are very different from a to-do list. And Microsoft Lists makes it possible to do that. Uh, the integration with Teams is great. We have a daily Teams meeting at my day job. And sometimes action items come out of those Teams meetings. And uh, I can easily keep track of them uh, in Microsoft List because it's right there. I never lose track of it. And if there are situations when I'm collaborating with other people, uh, Microsoft List is a great way to do that because everybody has access to the information that they need. Which brings up the question, well, who should use Microsoft Lists? Anybody who collaborates, anybody who's using Microsoft 365, obviously, because you have it right there. Uh, If you're in an enterprise, you have all of the security that you need, and you have direct access wherever you are within the organization or wherever you happen to be in the world. Your lists just got a whole lot smarter. Get more done with Microsoft Lists. Go to aka.ms slash mslists for more information videos, demos, blogs, and more. Here's that URL again. It is aka.ms slash mslists. Make a list and let it flow. Our thanks to Microsoft Lists for their support of this show and Relay FM. 
This is kind of a, a small thing, but I was struck by what you were saying about the, the boards where people indicate their presence in the office. And that made me think of a hundred situations in which there's, for a blind person, a visual cue, or for a person with a physical disability, there might be something at too high a, a level for them to reach or something like that, where it's it's not necessarily completely, your job is not completely dependent on being able to hurt uh, 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 to cross those barriers, but it's an inconvenience. Like, let's say there's a break room that has a microwave with all touch controls and there's no accessibility. And I guess I, I, I wonder, when we talk about positive disclosure, you're talking about the employer lit, writ large and maybe the company as a whole. But I wonder what your thoughts are about having a confidant or having somebody in your own team that you might feel comfortable asking for assistance or looking for accommodations on your own to address sort of small things in the office, like like the microwave or like the door handle that's at the wrong place or whatever. That might not be a great example because that actually has to be physically changed. But uh, I, I guess I want, because I've had similar, I've had experiences where I've tried to figure out whether if I, if I communicate with one person, some need that I have, am I putting myself in a vulnerable position as a new employee? But if I don't, am I less able to do the job or function equally to everyone else in the workplace. Yeah, and this is the dilemma that I think we've all faced at some point or another if we're disabled people, that you think, is it worth being the squeaky wheel on this one or am I going to get a reputation for being a troublemaker and do I just have to suck this thing up? And I think no matter what level of an organisation we are at, we get that. I mean, sometimes in my position, I might have a team member, although they're a lot better now, uh, but I might have a team member who might give me a uh, an image, like an inaccessible PDF image of this document. And I think to myself, well, I can actually perform OCR on this and maybe I'll get a few things wrong or the formatting might not be perfect. Should I... Um, insist on an accessible version of this or am I just making trouble? And I think we all have that little dilemma from time to time. I think when you're a new hire, the good thing is that somebody obviously is enthusiastic about having hired you. They've decided that they've given this a go and assuming there's been positive disclosure, so you've been upfront about your impairment, they want to make it work. Where it can often go wrong, and we see this a little bit, is when that hiring manager moves on and suddenly Mm, you've got a new supervisor and the new supervisor just thinks this is just a too much trouble, a waste of time, or they simply don't understand your accessibility requirements and start making changes oblivious to the consequences of you, of you for you. That is a big challenge, and I've seen that. I haven't had that happen to me personally so much, but I've absolutely seen it where you and, – and you do as an employee in general cultivate a relationship with your supervisor, or you try to, uh, that is one of – you know, mutual respect and collegiality and all that stuff. And if, if, if there's a disability involved, you might actually provide additional disclosures or you might just let them give, have some insight into to what you're doing. And then you, you put in all that effort and then that person moves along and you might be working with somebody who is uh, that you either don't have that relationship with or that is more difficult for some reason. That's that's a that's a big one. Mm, it is. And it can cause people to move on, unfortunately. And, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, let's talk about technology 
accommodations? Because I, I don't know what how the laws uh, in New Zealand work, but we have, of course, the Americans with Disabilities Act here, and there are in in many large employers there are pretty well laid out accommodation programs. It doesn't mean it, it, in the sense that there are there are procedures one goes through when one hires when one is hired. Uh, that doesn't always get everything, though. And certainly, if you're certainly in a lot of employment situations, you don't have a policy for accommodation because maybe you're the first disabled employee. And then I, I wonder, too, about, uh, okay, in order to do this job, not only do you have to have a computer, but you have to have specific uh, software. And I wonder, I, I guess the, the question I'm trying to come around to is, and, and I say this as somebody who's fairly technologically savvy and have hacked my own accommodations more than once, is how you advise employees, and I guess by extension, employers, to address the specificity of accommodation. So it's not just, okay, here's a computer with JAWS, you're on your own, we're done. But there's a lot more to it, isn't there? Yes, there is. And in New Zealand, the system is a little bit different. So as I understand the way the United States works, it's fundamentally an employer's responsibility to accommodate the disabled employee if that's a reasonable accommodation to make. In New Zealand, that is true to some extent, but... There is a, a series of funds that you can tap into if there are significant costs that are required to allow you to do your job. Uh, so, for example, if I land a job at an organization which would normally supply a laptop, the organization is required to supply the laptop because that's just a regular cost of hiring that new employee. But if I need JAWS and a braille display, the government will fund that. And I think that's a very good model because otherwise it's kind of like a disincentive. It's like hiring a disabled person costs you more than hiring somebody who isn't disabled. Right. But then you get into the question of, well, precisely what's needed. And this is one of the challenges that a lot of the people making the decisions about whether a um, particular piece of technology is appropriate for a given situation or not, may not necessarily have the technical knowledge to make that decision. And so, you know, it, it is important that we uh, research that thoroughly and encourage people to ask for what they actually need and provide a pretty robust justification, especially in this day and age. So many jobs still use quite proprietary software that may have been written in-house, or they're not what I would call particularly orthodox. If you're just using uh, Microsoft Office, those pretty safe options, then you can get away with a number of free options, including the narrator that is built into Windows, which is now an increasingly capable screen reader. But chances are there's at least one application in your workplace that is a bit proprietary in some way or, or not, not fully accessible. And that's why a screen reader, well, JAWS specifically, actually, which is the only currently developed viable commercial option in our markets anyway, is necessary. And that's fairly expensive, but it can be scripted. You can tailor an application to uh, work in, in, in a very friendly way, but that costs. And so sometimes we find ourselves having to justify that cost. And the challenge of sort of thinking you understand the accommodations, but then either circumstances uh, letting you know that there's more accommodation needed or different accommodations needed or even changes. Okay, the employer has this piece of software and they've decided to change their 
software completely. Uh, so I, I guess I wonder what, if any, role does the employee have to whether they are technical or not, keep up with this stuff so that they can be part of the decision making that goes on with their employer and make sure that they advocate for the accommodations that they need. I mean, in an ideal world, they shouldn't have to be any more tech savvy than any other employee, but we know that this is not an ideal world. And I think many blind people get under the hood in terms of technology a lot more than the most people do. So I think we all get a bit curious some people just don't have the aptitude for that. They could right. be some absolutely brilliant at what they do. They could be an astrophysicist, but not necessarily have an affinity for assistive technology. And that is very frustrating. And um, I don't know what to suggest about that other than hopefully these days there are good networks out there. It's pretty easy to tap into resources that get you in touch with other blind people and other assistive technology professionals. And hopefully you can get the answer that you need. But it is an additional pressure for sure. Yeah. And then the the idea that the accommodations actually match what are needed is interesting. I've had both positive and negative experiences. The, the weirdest positive one I ever had was when a, an employer, uh, I indicated that I needed essentially a teleprompter so that I could read radio scripts live. And a week later, a 12.9-inch iPad Pro showed up on my desk. I was delighted by this because it was way more than I expected. Uh, the reverse of that, of course, is, wait a minute, I'm not going to buy you a $1,000 iPad, but that might be what I need. And so I, I guess putting aside the sort of do I know or don't I know the, the technical jargon, how much resistance do you get from employers, especially if you have to come back after the fact and say, we're going to, this person really does need a Braille display for these following reasons or a particular piece of software or custom scripts written for JAWS or whatever it might be. And this is where we are fortunate because in that situation, the government would step up and fund that. So if somebody thinks they can get by with a Braille display, but then they find they're doing a little bit more presenting than they initially thought they would, and they do that best with Braille, then it would be the government's support funds uh, source that they would go to and not the employer for that funding for that device. Yeah, and that's the the challenge here is that the in the United States, and I'm not universally versed in this, but uh, funds that provide, uh, there are state funds to provide uh, devices for people who are employed, but uh, once you're employed, you have less access to need-based funding, so it, it's kind of a catch-22, it seems like. Right. Yeah, and in Europe, they're rocking it. I mean, I've seen people in Europe who have a, a, an 80-cell Braille display at home and another one at work, and they've oh all been God. fully funded. <laughs> <laughs> that's impressive. That's how that's how we sell 80-cell Braille displays. <laughs> yeah, yeah. As, a, as somebody who's, who's worked for other people, I know that beyond just sitting at your desk doing your job or at, at the sink washing those dishes or whatever, because I don't want to be, want this to just sound like it's about people who are professionals who are working in an office, because obviously it applies to people who do many kinds of work. But every workplace has culture. It has, to some extent, politics. There are relationships that have to be tended in order to either get projects completed or get promoted or whatever your your interpersonal goals are. And I wonder what your thoughts are about how people with disabilities who you've got the job, you've got the equipment that you need, 
You want to move up in your career. You want to be imp- you want to be the rock star that uh, Workbridge sold you as when you started out at that <laughs> job. And so I guess I, I guess I, I would would ask what are, what's your advice for somebody, especially who hasn't necessarily had all that much job experience, to, is how to figure out that cultural part and how to sort of make the make their way in the work world. One would like to hope that if you do the best possible job you can that you're dependable, reliable, and you're good at what you do, that you will be able to progress. Now, whether we're disabled or not, we all know that sometimes, as you say, those politics intervene and uh, strange things can happen in terms of promotions, that sort of thing. And um, I, I think sometimes what can happen is that some unscrupulous employers, and hopefully there aren't that many, but they can take advantage of the fact that they think, well, we don't really need to promote this disabled employee because how easy is it for them to find something else? I think that is a real risk that we face. And I've actually experienced this in my own career where I genuinely believe that a poorer uh, applicant for a position got it because the employer thought that I would have to stick around because I wouldn't be able to find anything else, which I duly did and went to a competitor within a couple of days of that decision being made. But it is a real, it is a real risk. So there has to be good faith on both sides. Well, and that goes back to what you're saying about maybe a supervisor that you've worked well with is gone and another person is there and you're making your case. You can show that you've done a good job on paper, but that hesitance that maybe cause people to wonder whether they should hire you in the first place might rear its ugly head when promotion comes around. And I've I've seen that kind of thing where you're never sure. And that's the other thing. It saps the confidence of the employee when they're wondering, did I not get that promotion because somebody didn't trust that I could do the job because they didn't have faith in me because of my disability? Or did I not get it for some other reason that applies to everybody else? That's exactly right. Sometimes people blame or attribute disability for an outcome when it may not necessarily be the reason. And that's one of the challenges I think we all face is that we've got to be careful not to be too sensitive. At the same time, sometimes the writing on the wall is uh, so obvious that even somebody who's totally blind like me can read it. <laughs> right. But but understanding, I mean, self-awareness in terms of to the extent that you can and you can't always know, understanding when it's right to go, hey, there's something wrong here. That promotion should have been mine by rights or I should have had this opportunity to compete with it. But it has to do with my disability versus, well, maybe I'm just not being reasonable in my expectations or maybe there was, in fact, another candidate that was better for reasons that I'm not clear on uh, figuring out how to how to navigate that in person interpersonally and and in your own head is is a challenge I think yes it is because obviously there are legal remedies that you can take or lesser than that perhaps some sort of mediation service that you might be able to bring in but when you do that you know you could be burning some bridges and so that's always a difficult decision especially if you are worried about future prospects so hopefully you know, this depends on a little bit of confidence on the part of the employee, but also willingness for quality dialogue from the employer as well. But ideally, what you would hope is that you could sit down in a situation like that and say, look, I, I really have some concerns about this promotion that I missed out on. I really feel I'm the best candidate for the job. Would you mind explaining to me uh, why I was unsuccessful and see what you get back? 
Well, that uh, that brings to mind another sensitive subject for every employee and employer is is salary negotiations. Mm. Uh, There's always both when when we get the job and when we go for the promotion or when we're trying to decide whether to stick with an employer or go to a different employer. And I would imagine and you tell me because you work with people with all kinds of disabilities that what is said often about women is that they are not uh, as aggressive in terms of salary negotiation as, you know, the typical woman versus the typical man, whatever that means. And I would imagine that that applies to people with disabilities, too, some of whom may not feel as confident in their position as another employee or employee who has equal skills and experience. Yes, one of the good things in New Zealand of late is that Statistics New Zealand has been gathering data on a range of disability-related topics, and it does appear that there is a disability-related gap similar to the wage gap that still, sadly, exists for women. So there's no doubt that that's an issue. And again, I think one of the challenges that we have is that a lot of disabled people think, well, if I hold out for too much, I might lose this altogether. And some employers will know this and they'll know that this person has been seeking work for a while. Uh, There's also, of course, the perception from the employer that, well, this is a bit of a risk for me. I'm really not sure what to expect. I'm willing to give it a try. But in my opinion, the risk is such that it warrants some slightly lower wage. Now, I think that's, uh, that's faulty thinking. One of the controversial things that we've debated over the years here in New Zealand is the concept of a trial period. My personal opinion, and it's not necessarily work bridges, but uh, we used to have a 90-day trial period where an employer could hire somebody for up to 90 days, and then if they determined that that relationship was not working out, they could terminate the relationship, no questions asked, essentially. And um, I had this experience very early on in my career where I went to a radio station that was just starting up at a time when we had a major international sporting event on in the city I was living in. And they were only on from 6 a.m. until midnight. I went to the radio station and I said, look, the city is humming 24-7 right now. I will do midnight till 6 a.m. for you on the radio. And all I ask in exchange is that if you like me, if you think I'm any good, and then a paid shift comes up, that you give it to me. So I did that for two weeks during this major sports event. And within a month, I was doing the morning drive show. So that worked for me. And I think it sometimes does work for other disabled people because what they really want is just the opportunity to prove themselves. That opportunity now no longer exists in New Zealand because there are legitimate concerns about exploitation. But I think sometimes you know, we, we, we teach and talk about all sorts of options like the informational interview, doing a bit of voluntary work, making sure you're not exploited, though. But often just building those relationships in any way you can are critical. A lot of really good jobs are never advertised. I've heard that many times before, you know, maybe go do in a, do some sort of voluntary work or or just, you know, get involved with the people that you're going to be working with and, and somehow engage with them and offer to do it for a short period of time or for, for less for a little while. That gets dicey when you get a little further along in your career, right? Because yeah, I'm, I yeah. may be switching employers or trying to, I may be trying to do that thing. I may be getting out of a bad situation and saying, well, I can go to your competitor. Well, the competitor 
who who may benefit from my services may still need to be convinced that I'm just as worthy, if not more so, than the other people that they're considering, right? (laughs) When I worked in radio full time, it was always the ops person. And I would be sort of signing the deal essentially with the radio station with the general manager and the ops person. And I have to say, it was usually an ops guy. In fact, in every case, for me, it was the ops guy. And he would come in and say, ah, you may be able to have worked all that other equipment, but there's no way that a blind guy would be able to work ours and we'd be back to square one and I'd have to somehow prove myself all over again. So that is a frustrating thing. Yeah, that actually, I've seen that kind of a challenge. Like I say, you you develop a relationship, you get a hire, you have a team that you work with, and then you're put in a situation where you're working with somebody who who doesn't know you and you haven't softened them up with positive disclosure, which is kind of the way I think of it, honestly. Like, I, I think of, I keep talking about building relationships, and for me, that seems like such an important thing. And then you find yourself working with somebody who's tangentially connected with your team and they don't know you and... Uh, you're starting all over again. It's, it's like yeah, yeah, you are, and it is exhausting, and it, yeah. and it's okay for you and me, but for many others, as you've already alluded to, it can be incredibly draining and demoralizing. What uh, haven't we we talked about? What kind of advice? I guess st- let's start with the employee side. But what would your guidance be for somebody who's just they're trying to move ahead in their career, and they have this thing, they have this disability that they need to address one way or another. But they're ambitious and goal oriented and smart and and what what are some just some tips you have for somebody like that? You know, in recent years, I've spent a lot of time doing meditation and um, mindfulness type exercises, and I think if I were advising anybody, including my younger self, it would be that it's okay to wish the world were different and to advocate and fight very hard for the world to be different. But in the meantime, we also have to work with the world in the here and now and accept that this is how it is while also seeking to change it. So it is going to be difficult. And I think if you're seeking work, you really need to make that your full-time job. Get up in the morning get dressed, have a, a space, or if you don't have a space in, in, in your where you live, Uh, Make the dining room table free so you can get a a device of some kind and allocate a time when you're fresh, like 9 through to 11 a.m., to peruse the job sites in the fields that interest you and try and make sure that you've got some applications, that you've done them, that you've got them out and spend the rest of your day not watching the soaps or spending time on uh, Facebook or Snapchat or whatever, but actually getting you closer to being the ideal employee. So I know in a blindness context, for example, there is so much training out there now, quite a bit of it free. And one thing I do admire Freedom Scientific for a lot is that they have put out a wealth of free training on using tools like Microsoft Office, various things like that, that you're going to have to use in most workplaces. So upskill yourself, make it impossible for that employer to say no when you get the chance to meet them because you're just doing so well. And uh, and if necessary, and it's not necessary for all um, people, but work with an organization like ours. There are some supported employment agencies around the world that do a similar thing to what WorkBridge does. Because apart from the contacts that they have, you know, you you might not necessarily need them to go in and hold your hand and be there with you. And that's fine. Uh, In our case, we just provide whatever support you want. But what WorkBridge and other supported employment agencies may have that you may not 
is access to a network, and it's in our case, it's a national network of disability-confident employers, people that we've already worked on, people that we've softened up, who are at least willing to entertain the idea of hiring a disabled person. And uh, that can really short-circuit the process. Well, let's talk about the employer side for a little bit. And instead of asking as I'm sure you're asked often, what is your pitch to employers about why and how to hire disabled folks? Uh, my question would be, what's your pitch to employers to keep disabled people working and promote them through the organization and trust them as, as potentially leaders within that organization? I think I would look at the strengths of the individual and also the strengths that disability may bring. I was talking to somebody who has just got really almost religious, uh, fervent about hiring disabled people now because they've had a couple of really big successes and, and now they're on a roll with this. And they said, look, just having these different perspectives from people with a range of impairments has meant that we've handled a few accessibility issues for our customers. We've, we're just a much more welcoming organisation for a much wider group of people. So... My advice would be to think about the value that this person is adding and think in terms of opportunities and not obstacles. If you perceive that there is a potential barrier or a question mark around moving someone up to a more senior role, then ask someone. I think one of the biggest challenges that we all face is that we're more limited by other people's perceptions of our disability than the actual limitations themselves. So many people just assume things. And so it's really, this is why our Just Say Yes program was founded, because we wanted people to have a safe place where they could ask those how will they type questions, how do they type questions, without fear of any legal reprisals in a very safe place and we can give them very positive and honest answers. Yeah, I think that's true. I think there are people, and especially given legal frameworks around disability rights, I think there are, and, and employers or, or man, line level managers who don't even necessarily understand the details of the rules, but they know they have to provide accommodations and they know that they're not supposed to, you know, ask what we might call dumb questions. But yeah, mm. having that safe space, that seems like a, a rarity, especially in you know large organizations, where who who do you go to 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 ask those questions and give who who gives you permission to ask them is is a, is a challenge. Yeah, and sometimes employers feel if they ask the employee directly, it may be seen as some sort of slight or an insult where none was intended. So if you do have somebody that you can ask those safe questions of because you genuinely want to make it work, then that's really good for both parties. I, I think um, I understand why so many people are frustrated when they've been looking for work and they feel like they've been held back. Most employers, and I've dealt with a lot, and uh, particularly in my role, chief executives of some pretty large organizations here, uh, I haven't come across any ogres. I've just come across people with a lot of doubts and questions that they're willing to have dealt with but in the past, there hasn't really been a, a format or a place to get those dealt with. Yeah, and, and not everybody is, 
I guess, fortunate enough to have a resource like yours to, to, go, to go to, or they may not necessarily know that such a resource exists, even if it, if it mm. does. So a little research probably would be helpful. Well, Jonathan Mosen, thank you so much for being on Parallel. It's been a delight, and I'd love for you to tell people where they can find uh, you and all the things you do. Sure. You can find WorkBridge at workbridge.co.nz and our website is there. There'll be a link there to our Just Say Yes program as well. Uh, I think the one thing I would conclude with is that this has been the most meaningful, impactful, special work that I have ever done in my career because there's something about being able to answer with pride and with confidence and dignity, the question, what is it that you do for a living? And when we give people that economic independence, well, we facilitate it. We don't give it. I mean, they get the job. But when we've somehow had a hand in them getting that economic independence, that dignity, it is the most incredible thing ever. And I just love doing this work. I bet it is. I bet it is. Thanks again, Jonathan. It was great to talk to you. It's a pleasure. Thanks for tuning in to Parallel today. You can find out more about this episode or any episode of Parallel at relay.fm slash parallel. That's where you can find show notes and transcripts. Subscribe to the podcast in any way you like and also become a member of Relay FM. You can support the entire network or you can specifically support Parallel which would be really awesome if you felt like doing that. You can also follow this show on Twitter at Parallel Pods, and that's where you'll be the first to know when a new episode is released. Thanks for listening. Bye now.